Hello and welcome to Stuck in the 90s. As always, we are your weekly nostalgia podcast dedicated to chronicling the years 1990 through 1999. This week's Stuck in the 90s episode is probably the most feature-packed and fuck it, I can't do this Apple keynote thing. We're doing a September 20th, no, September 17th through 23rd in 1998. It's episode 38. How about that? And we're your hosts. My name's Connor Thompson. Ooh, you're on the ball with that. And I'm Chris Elphick. Just to, you know, keep things, keep things switched up. I'll take the first story. Starting off the week with September 17th. Bernie Sanders releases his autobiography, Outsider in the House. Eventually, producers and screenwriters Dennis Rinsler and Mark Warren would get a hold of the book, adapting it into the 2000 series, sorry, 2007 series, Corey in the House. I'm not lying. You're lying. Fake news. I have the best facts. Baba Booey, Baba Booey, Howard Stern's penis, Baba Booey. You want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Show me the money. You know the difference between you and me is I make this look good. Welcome to Earth. Welcome to Jurassic Park. Welcome to my nightmare. Life is like a box of chocolates. Houston, we have a problem. It was reprinted in 2015 as Outsider in the White House. Don't worry, I have no idea what the fuck just happened either. It kind of went off the rails a little bit. September 18th, Afghans report ethnic massacre by Taliban. This one's out of Pakistan. Refugees fleeing an Afghan city recently conquered by the Taliban say that troops with the ultra-Orthodox religious army slaughtered thousands of civilians while they took the town last month. Uh, And this is Peshawar, Afghanistan. The refugees, who are arriving here each day on foot from the northern Afghan city of Mazar-e-Sharif, say Taliban fighters focused exclusively on an ethnic minority known as the Hazaras, picked out by their distinctive Mongolian features. Many refugees say they fled a city littered with corpses, some of them machine-gunned, others with their throats cut, and yet others still blown to pieces by missiles and grenades. Jesus Christ. And three years later, the United States started caring for some reason. Yeah. Anyway, oh, this is, uh, this one escalates pretty quickly. September 19th, Car Thief 20, convicted of murder. This is out of San Fernando. A 20-year-old white supremacist who was running from police in a stolen van when he collided with another vehicle, killing the driver, was convicted of murder on Friday. Quote, because the defendant didn't want to face the consequences of car theft, he decided to gamble with the lives of police officers and everyone else who was on the road that night, said Deputy District Attorney David Mintz. I think he needed to be held accountable for the loss of life and irreparable harm that he has caused the victim's family. Besides second-degree murder, the jury also convicted the defendant of evading police, auto theft, receiving stolen property, and driving without a license, Mintz said. September 20th. Fat Joe faces a different music. Fat Joe, the hip-hop recording artist, seems to be sitting on top of the world with his own label, Terror Squad Records, and his second album hitting number 7 on the Billboard album chart the week it was released, Fat Joe is becoming one of the rising stars of hip-hop music. This is so 90s. But on September 8th, three days before thousands of fans turned out to celebrate the release of a new album uh, at a midtown club, Fat Joe, a Bronx native whose real name is Joseph Cartagena? This is why he's Fat Joe. I get it. Was arrested on robbery and assault charges as he autographed albums for fans at the HMV Music Store at 34th Street and the Avenue of the Americas in Manhattan. Police said that on June 14th, on Willis Avenue and 132nd Street in the Mott Haven section of the Bronx, uh, Fat Joe, 
then age 28, and Christopher Rios, 26, another rapper known as Big Punisher, allegedly hit a man with a baseball bat and snatched his gold chain. Dat rap life. Uh, Fat Joe, you may remember from that song with Ashanti in, like, maybe a couple years later? That's the one not with Ja Rule. No, Ja Rule is in that, I think. Oh, fuck. Of course he is. My mistake. Yeah. I should have known. I, I feel like they're a package deal, right? He's in all of them. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Moving on to, ooh, September 21st. We got a lot of TV shows premiering this day. The American talk show, Donnie and Marie, King of Queens, starring Paul Blart Mall Cop. The J.J. Abrams-created show, Felicity, starring Carrie Russell and former Pink Power Ranger, Amy Jo Johnson. And a show that I feel like needs no supporting text, Will and Grace. Ooh. Yeah. That's a bunch of good ones. I know, right? And there were also a bunch of bad ones that I didn't even know about as... September every year brings the TV shows that don't make it. It's true. Uh, September 22nd, Disney's dub of Studio Ghibli's Kiki's Delivery Service came out on VHS today. One reason this is notable is that it's Phil Hartman's last voice acting performance, uh, according to Wikipedia, uh, the ultimate source for everything. Yep. Also, Casper Meets Wendy came straight to VHS today, surprise, surprise, bringing with it a 10-year-old Hilary Duff. Yeah. As Wendy. I think this was probably her film debut. Okay. Yeah. I'm into that. Pre-Lizzie McGuire. Pre-Lizzie McGuire. Yeah. Her most important work. Oh, yeah. That would be, like, that. that's her magnum opus. Nothing will it ever is. top. Fuck, if something ever tops Lizzie McGuire's perform. I mean, Hilary Duff as Lizzie McGuire, man. It's weird to top out when you're, like, what? How old is she? Like, Maybe 14? Like 15. Yeah, yeah, 14, 15. Yeah, yeah I guess that's kind of... Sad. Yeah, that's depressing. Yeah. I mean, hey... Now, now I want her to do something like well, monumental. She put out some albums. She did, but not much recently. Hmm. I think she the last thing I heard about her was like she was on Tinder. Well, I know she travels around quite a bit, like London, Paris, maybe Tokyo. There's something going on everywhere she goes tonight. Tonight. Yeah, tonight. It is a Saturday night hmm. as we are recording this. Oh my God. Uh, that's flashbacks to high school. Anyway, finishing off the week. We had a weird high school experience. I wanted that to be full of no context. Okay, and moving on to September 23rd. The world's first medically successful hand transplantation is carried out by a team of surgeons in France. The guy later didn't take his, like, anti-rejection drugs and the hand was re-amputated in 2001. How many medically unsuccessful hand transplantations were there? Uh, I don't know. I that's a really good question. <laughs> I mean, is this something that you try? Maybe you don't report you succeed? on those. Is it like uh, you know, like building better rockets and eventually getting into orbit, or is this something you really, really try to like? You know, get it down in rehearsal, and then when you go live on stage, it's kind of a one-shot, one-take thing. Yeah, you just kind of sew oranges together for a while. Yeah, I would until hope you there's get there. like some practice and not like. All oh, right. it's my good friend, Mr. McGreg, with a leg for an arm and yeah. an arm for a leg. Oh, Dr. Nick, you get me every time. Oh, yeah. Uh, let's move on to movies and music. So number one in the box office this week is a fan favorite, Rush Hour. Oh, yeah. Chris Tucker and Jackie Chan. This is one of the best buddy cop movies maybe ever. Oh, it definitely is. Um, let's, let's whip through some really cool trivia here and move on to music after. Uh, so first and foremost... As in all Jackie Chan movies, I think, there was a near-death experience. So Jackie Chan is almost killed filming the scene where he's almost crushed by metal boxes. 
So they slammed, If you, I remember this scene from the movie too, they slammed together about a quarter of a second after his head was clear from the position of impact. All right, Martin Lawrence was the original choice for Agent Carter. Eddie Murphy was offered the role of Carter, but he turned it down to make Holy Man instead. Uh, also, Dave Chappelle, Will Smith, and most notably, Tupac were all considered for that role. Wow. Will Smith would have been pretty good. Tupac, uh, that must have been in the early stages of pre-production when he was considered. Yep. Okay, so the exterior shots of the Chinese consulate were also the exterior shots for the original Wayne Manor uh, in Batman, the 1966 version. Well, you know, uh, Wayne Enterprises goes under... You gotta sell off some of your assets. You gotta move those assets. Yeah. Gotta liquidate. Yeah, liquidate. Okay. Liquify. On the white half of the black and white cookie, the original casting choices for the roles that ended up being Lee and Carter uh, were Chris Farley and Martin Lawrence, and many news reports connected Farley's not making the film to his tragic death in December 1977. (sighs) Don't do that. I know. In fact, Farley and the production for the film uh, had decided a few years earlier not to work together on the film as they were already leaning towards the ultimate casting choice for the two leads, uh, obviously one Asian actor and one black actor. Farley's downward spiral in real life covered roughly the same time period that the film was made. I say that is a coincidence and nothing more. Probably. Let's close this out on a lighter note. So Rush Hour was one of several films released in 1998 to feature the new blue Pepsi cans, which were also introduced that year. That is probably something uh, with continuity that I've never thought about. I hadn't either. Like, especially if you're filming out in the real world and a brand changes something that you know changes its logo or updates its packaging something like that and you're filming a film out of sequence that's something you really got to keep an eye on i I wonder like how many movies have new coke in them oh you think that is a really good question like there's gotta be a few right there there must be how long did it last a couple years a few years too long yeah Oh, the new Coke. Anyway. That stuff will never go away. Let's move on to music. All right. Uh, but first, do we have any 90s news now to bring up this week? Oh, um, there's been a bit of reboot action going on. Oh. Yeah, I posted a picture to our Instagram. Yeah, you did. Yeah. Uh, I don't the, know. Can we talk about how punny the name The Sorcerer is for a second? He's the That's main, pretty good. I he's mean, the main villain in the new is series. Is that good? I don't know. I, I'm Yeah, I'm source torn code? on this. Sorcerer? Oh, yeah, I get it. I get it. I know it, you do. But... There's something plain and just that something that works. About oh, this show looks like awful. Megabyte, hexadecimal, hack no and slash, pl- hack and slash, dot matrix, Bob. Oh yeah, that's the best pun. Yeah, yeah, Bob. <sighs> Enzo. It looks like garbage. It looks like hot garbage. I'm yeah. I'm not. I'm not looking forward to we this. We should get really drunk when we watch it. That might make it watchable. Yeah. Oh, how about this? Reboot drinking game. Anytime there's a pun, we take a drink. This is after about maybe three shots of a pre-drink. I'm into that. Okay, three shots pre-drink. We should live stream this. This is a really good idea. Yep. And we're committed. This is a, we probably shouldn't commit to things on the air, but we we just committed. We are, we are podcast committed to this. Uh, I'm not looking forward to. All right, let's move on and try and forget about it. All right. Ooh, you know what's good for, for numbing the pain? We just need to start off this week's music segment by letting everyone know that the number seven song on Canada's alternative charts this week is Do Host by Ramstein. That's great. Uh, anyways, we're actually going to be taking a look at the top albums in the Canadian charts this week. And there's kind of a strange amount of movie soundtracks in the top 100 this week, with a soundtrack both opening and closing the list with 
many others in between. So I just want to talk about and maybe list off some oh, no. of those. The worst one is at the top. Uh, Armageddon. We'll see. Really? Yeah. Uh-oh. What the fuck is this? Yeah. Armageddon. Back, no, no, number two. Back to Titanic original soundtrack. I don't know. That's not Titanic. I just glossed over this before and just assumed Holy it was shit. Titanic. Nicolas Cage's best role. City of Angels soundtrack. Best? Like, yeah. Okay, so I think I've discussed this before, but just as a quick reminder, City of Angels is Nicolas Cage's perfect role, because in this movie, he plays an angel, and also in this movie, angels are, like, emotionless. They have no depth at all. They can, like, they, they don't convey emotion. It's his finest work. It is his magnum opus. And we don't throw the word magnum opus around lightly on this podcast. Well... <laughs> Okay, what other weird soundtracks are on here? Titanic? Uh, the actual Titanic soundtrack is at 23. Okay. Uh, something called 54 Volume 2. I don't even know what that is. Uh, oh, The Wedding Singer. Volume 2, though? Uh, is this Volume 2 of the soundtrack? I don't know, but just The Wedding Singer is at 32. So That's one of weird. these is doing better. Maybe it could be one of those where one album is a score and then the other is like the uh, actual okay. music tie-in. But yeah, that could be it. I don't know if... There was a particularly great score to The Wedding Singer. Just a lot of good songs. Yeah. Ooh, How Stella Got Her Groove Back is on here. I've always wanted to know that. Yeah. Oh, Do- my God. Dr. Doolittle? Wait. Where's Dr. Oh. Look uh, Look at 51. I can't believe it. Whoa. The Ally McBeal soundtrack. Yeah. Full of uh, Vonda Shepherds. I don't want... Oh, wait, no. Uh, fuck, what was, what was the Vonda Shepard song? I don't remember. I almost just broke into, uh... I don't want to wait for Elias to be over Dawson's yeah, Creek. I almost broke into that, but... What? For some reason, the name Vonda Shepard still is in my memory, Ooh. but none of the music she created for this show is. Uh, what else is on here? Can't Hardly Wait and The Full Monty. Yes. And then, as we said, the Top 100 ends with an album as well, and that's the original soundtrack to blade that's a gnarly movie yeah i'm into it oh yeah so we're gonna go right into our spotlight today which is going to pick up right from where we left off on today's music segment the 90s were a time when the movie tie-in single was at its peak showing up on many movie original soundtracks with the 90s shoving these cross promotional songs for better or for worse down our throats or ears I think we could probably dedicate a whole spotlight to some of the most memorable movie tie-in singles. We had hits from the Space Jam soundtrack. Most of Will Smith's blockbusters, uh, from the later part of the decade at least, came with a song uh, hand-in-hand. And of course, Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On. That's as much of a part of Titanic as I'm King of the World, or Paint Me Like One of Your French Girls. Or blub blub blub. (laughs) That's uh, unfortunately true. Yeah. And I think we could go on for a long time, but we may save that for another spotlight, because I think there's there's a lot of 90s gold in that. So today we're going to be looking at some of the Stranger Movie tie-in singles that this decade produced. Songs that either don't quite mesh with the content or feel the film it's trying to represent, or ones that are just plain weird. Yeah, we're going to talk about some ones that just really kind of stand out. Um, I think I'm going to take the first one. The middle, the the second one we've got here has has some stuff in it, so... I'm going to give that to you. Okay. All right. The first one's exactly what I expected, though. Oh, yeah. This is this is probably the one that came to everyone's mind when we brought up this topic. 
Unsurprisingly, we are going to start off with Seal's Kiss from a Rose it's, from the Batman Forever soundtrack. It's perfect. Oh, yeah. In every way. All right. So Batman Forever came out in 1995. The song was originally released in 94 on Seal's second self-titled album, where it did all right. But it was in the next year that, for some reason, that may forever remain a mystery to us, it was included on the soundtrack to Batman Forever. Along with that came a brand new music video directed by the film's director, Joel Schumacher. The video had Seal performing the song alongside the bat signal, interspersed with clips from the film Batman Forever, and apparently one clip from Batman Returns. You probably, if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably seen this video at least a couple times. Kiss from a Rose isn't necessarily a bad song. I like it. I don't know what you think. It's classic. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of fun to sing in almost like an 80s power ballad kind of way, the same way you'd sing along to, like, Eye of the Tiger, kinda. Yeah, I, th- I think I agree with that. Yeah, but somewhere between the clips of, you know, the Riddler brandishing his question mark wand and the cartoonish sets and Seal pouring his soul out next to the bat signal, the whole thing kind of just falls apart into absurdity, I think. It's glorious. It is. Now, not every tie-in film song has to be really about the movie if every tie-in was as detailed and well done as like uh the ghostbusters song by ray yeah. parker jr i think the concept of the tie-in song would have gotten really old way faster than it actually did um with examples of that being something like the ninja rap in teenage mutant ninja turtles mm, yeah okay yeah um now i can't seem to find anything a thread at all relating the song to the movie perhaps the quote light that you shine can be seen maybe is a reference to the bat signal maybe the song is told from the perspective of batman singing to commissioner gordon that's the light that you shine he compares commissioner gordon to a kiss from a rose that's beautiful i just started a whole new like shipping uh shipping thing excuse me while i brush off my single tear anyways i think this is one best solved by the riddler So I just quickly read through this next section, and what the fuck am I even looking at? Oh, yeah. But I mean, you remember this, right? Oh, yeah. Next up, we have the entire Godzilla soundtrack. This is the 1998 Godzilla, not to be confused with any of the other ones. And we're going to discuss the main singles from it. That's a hard word. I think we have to say that they did a pretty good job overall compiling an album that would perform really well commercially, uh, which it did, peaking at number four on the Billboard Hot 100, and despite being in the mid-30s on our list this week... Oh, I don't even think we mentioned that. No, we didn't. I, we must have missed it. Yeah. It did reach 16 in Canada. I think I had at least one friend with this CD back in 98. What about you? I wonder if Mitch had it. I think Mitch might have Mitch had Mitch would have had I think this. he did. Mitch probably would have had that. So the album's opening track, a cover of David Bowie's Heroes, by the wallflowers at least has some semblance of relation to the plot in that there are in fact heroes in the film who must act heroically to defeat godzilla that works right i think that works but the band you haven't thought about in over a decade actually that's not true because they're going on tour again and i'm very excited oh yeah you mentioned that didn't you yeah you said that a few episodes ago jamiroquai gave their song deeper underground the soundtrack and that's perfect as far as the plot the plot is concerned because that's where godzilla lives yeah that's, uh, that's what, or true. does he live underwater? No, I think he starts. He starts underground. Isn't he kind of underground? Isn't that a thing? I think he starts. Yeah, they start in like he starts in a sewer or something. Well, right? He's deeper under something. Yeah. 
The music video depicts a film theater in which the movie is being shown. However, as the screen shows Godzilla walking on the ocean floor, one of its feet breaks the screen and water floods into the theater as if the screen were made of glass and everything behind it were real. This is from Wikipedia, by the way. Oh my god. The theater turns into chaos as the audience tries to get out alive, in the midst of which JK appears and dances on top of the seats. Several other things go through the screen, including a helicopter and a taxi. At the end of the video, the camera pans out and it emerges that this entire flood was itself being watched by a different cinema audience on another screen. Deep as fuck. Oh, yeah. And then there's Puff Daddy's Come With Me. For the 10-year-olds like us at the time, this may have been the most popular song, or at least it's the one I think we both remember the most. I think so. It stands out the most. The song recreates the 1975 Led Zeppelin song, Cashmere. Jimmy Page and producer Tom Morello also supplied live guitar parts. For the time, I think the music video does a pretty good job integrating itself into the Godzilla universe. It starts some Jurassic Park-esque rumbles uh, with Puff Daddy learning about Godzilla attacking the city on TV, followed by a bus uh, being tossed by Godzilla into his apartment. Actually, it starts with Puff Daddy having a wet dream interrupted by the rumbles, but we digress. He raps at the front of the building next to the bus with footage from the film decently woving in until he's blown up and tossed into an elevator. He raps the next verse as the elevator rapidly climbs into the building before crashing through the roof and into the New York sky as Godzilla continues his rampage below. Keeping with the realism of the film, Puff Daddy bursts into a flock of doves before coalescing back into himself in a white suit and landing at a concert in Times Square where he finishes the 7 minute video, holy shit that's a long video, with Jimmy Page appearing on various screens across Times Square and staring Godzilla in the eyes before asking the monster to come with him. It's a reasonable request, I think. What the fuck? Yeah, it's a, it's kind of a clusterfuck of a music video, but I think well done at the very least. It has nothing to do with the film at all. I can't find a single, like, I can't find a single semblance of plot. This is just a song that they decided is going to be on the soundtrack. <sighs> Which which happens. Should have been in Terminator. Come with me if you want to live. Yeah. That could have worked. Could have worked. Could have, but didn't. Oh, well. Okay, we've got one more. This one is from a movie in which Mick LaSalle of the San Francisco Chronicle noted, quote, when the criminals take over the plane, the soundtrack kicks into loud, obtrusive gear and remains so loud throughout the picture that it practically functions as a, dis- as a distancing device. Connor, I'm going to ask you two questions. And just as a note, as a matter of getting a genuine response, I've put all further notes regarding this final song into a separate document that you don't have access to, just because I want to know, I, I want to know if you're going to, I want to know if you know. We're talking about Con Air, right? Yes, we are talking about Con Air. Perfect. So that is question one. Okay. Question What's question two, two? Do you remember what the tie-in song is from Con Air? Shit. And with good reason. I don't think I do. Yeah, this is... I've seen the movie at least two or three times. Your bewilderment doesn't surprise me at all. Because the promotional tie-in song from the 1997 movie Con Air was How Do I Live by Leanne Rimes. What the With a big fucking asterisk next to her name, which I'll get to. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so Tally's singing in the background. I don't know Very if the quietly. microphone will pick, that up, will pick that up. But that's messed up. Yeah. So I'm it, shocked that you didn't know that. Oh, so you knew that? Yes. 
Okay, you remembered that. It's the part where, oh my god, like, the, the water is going, and there's smoke and stuff, and he's walking through to his wife, and he's got the bunny. Well, I remember now that you're describing it, but also, like... Con Air is not Nicolas Cage's magnum opus, so I feel like I can't be expected to remember all the details from his lesser roles. Is there like a, a Latin word for like set runner up to magnum opus? Because this probably isn't that. It's penultimate. Penultimate opus. No, because that's definitely a, that defines a clear second best, which this is not. So kind of what you're getting to in a movie starring Nicolas Cage, where a bunch of inmates take over an airplane. A pop country song about love and loss really doesn't quite fit in. No. This is a movie where you'd really expect something that kind of has descended from an 80s powerful rock tune like Danger Zone to be present, right? Enter Sandman. Yeah, especially considering that Jerry Bruckheimer produced both Top Gun and Con Air, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, onto that asterisk I mentioned earlier after I said Leanne Rhyme's name. Okay. So the song was written by Diane Warren with Leanne Rhimes in mind, uh, promising it to her, quote, no matter what. Hmm. Uh, Walt Disney Pictures, the parent company of Touchstone, decided that Rhimes' recording had too much of a pop feel to it. And because she was 14 at the time, that she was too young for the subject matter expressed in the song. So Trisha Yearwood was ultimately chosen to re-record the song utilizing a more throaty country-western vibe, mm. according to what we read off of Wikipedia. A throaty vibe. Yeah. So when Wilbur Rhymes, Leanne's father and then-manager, heard of this release, her version was quickly released to mainstream pop radio, and both songs were actually released on May 27th, 1997, possibly because of this, I don't know, issue... Neither Rhymes nor Yearwood's version of the song was included on the soundtrack for this film, in which it's a tie-in single for. Wow. Yeah. So, like every tie-in, it has a music video. This one is pretty boring, especially compared to some of the Godzilla ones, well, and uh, probably even compared to Kiss from a Rose. It's just footage of the movie cut between Trisha Yearwood and a band performing the song. And there's something really weird about kind of a low-power country ballad being played to the visuals of, like, a long-haired, dirty, scruffy-looking Nicolas Cage smiling at you wearing a wife beater. That Fantastic. Being, that's, being, that's a visual. Oh, yeah. I mean, that being said, the roundhouse kick during uh, the saxophone solo, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm on board. Yeah. I mean, not really, but... No, it's it's fucking... It makes no sense. No. I think this is... That's why I have this one here. Yeah. It is the least sensical movie tie-in song possibly of the entire decade. Like, you'd think it's Kiss from a Rose, but that's at least mar more marketable, I guess. The fact that they took a song... Like, Leanne Rimes' version of this did very, very well. It was one of the top songs of the year. I remember it fondly, but the fact that they chose a different artist to re-record it, kind of fucked around with everything, just makes the whole thing kind of a fiasco that I think we had to talk about. All right, let's move on to our sponsorship segment. Every week on the show, we bring you a sponsor, sometimes real, sometimes fictitious. This week, we're going back to our roots. Fictitious, but also real. This one gets real real fake oh it gets real fakely real this week 
Stuck in the 90s is brought to you by something that I think may have actually kind of died in the 90s, and that is parents having to tell their kids that magic doesn't exist, Santa Claus isn't real, the Tooth Fairy's not real. We didn't have Google. We couldn't search that stuff out. We had to be told. Kids now can just Google. Does Santa? Oh, we're doing it now. Ooh. Yeah, see the first the first it's link hand- here. handling the Santa talk with your kids today.com. Yeah, like any any 8-year-old with internet access can google this and find out. Oh, well, I mean not that you'd sad. get to 8, but like any 4-year-old yeah, with I access think a to the internet. Knows, a 4-year-old should know how to use Google, I think. Right? Like, I mean, I'm thinking what I could do on a computer when I was 4. I, you know, I played games, I figured shit out. Yeah. I think Google would be relatively intuitive. And like if you're, let's say you're a disconnected parent of a five-year-old, you buy that parent a a PlayStation 4, not knowing that there's a browser in there. Now little Timmy's on the internet looking at all sorts of fun things. Um, But I think maybe that was a thing. I don't know if it died in the 90s, but we had no other way aside from being told of finding that out. Logic kind of eventually worked its way. Eventually. Anyway, so this week's episode is brought to you by uh, Crushing Sadness, actually. Yeah, Crushing Sadness is a common theme of uh, sponsors on this show. Crushing yeah. Sadness is really, like, they, they're like our, they're our MailChimp. They are our, like, audible.com. I think it's pronounced MailChimp. MailChimp? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, this week's Crushing Sadness has <sighs> taken the form of finding out that Santa Claus may or may not be real. Stuck in the 90s is not coming down completely on one side or the other of that one. No, Stuck in the 90s uh, wants to believe. Yes. Just like uh, Mulder, just like Scully. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking, the X-Files want theme. to believe. All right. Uh, you can find us online. Our website is stuckinthe90spodcast.com. If you check it out, our logo spins. It's a whole thing. Our Instagram, just like the 90s, just like the 90s spinning. spinning. Uh, our Instagram and Facebook page are Stuck in the 90s Podcast. Our Twitter is Sit90s, S-I-T-90s. We've been posting things more regularly. It's fall. Fall's a time to get more regular, maybe to stay regular. It's a good thing. It is. Um, oh, I forgot. We had one honorable mention in the spotlight that oh, that's I exciting. forgot to get to. Uh, just a little honorable mention to the Armageddon soundtrack. You guys know about this one, just because Steven Tyler singing a love song about Ben Affleck plowing his daughter is maybe a little disturbing. Yeah. Just wanted to just wanted to slip that one in at the end of the podcast. It's kind of incestuous, but who knows? Ted Cruz is probably into it. Oh yeah, anyway. Ted Cruz is he's liking he's liking the tweet regarding that song. He certainly is. Bam. We made it relevant. Roasted. Politics. Yeah. Uh that it? Yeah, I don't know. Next week. Is a week. something For sure. September something. I don't know if we're hitting October 1st. I don't know how math works. Math is hard. What's 23 plus 7? Who knows? <laughs> in 1998, I really hope I did. Tune in next week and we will let you know. Yeah, we should like, can we dig up like old math tests? From, fuck, I wish I kept stuff like that. Like old math tests from like 98. To know if you Man, had you idiot. Ad. You didn't know what fucking nine times five was? Oh my god. Fully off the rails. Yeah. For now. The podcast Test is, is now, now over. over.